Will you please join me in prayer? Father, we have gathered to do what we have sung. To lift you up. To find ourselves in the shadow of your throne. To find our place in your footsteps. To open our eyes even further to the realization that you are leading us. That you hold all things, that you are God. Great King above all kings. Our King. Our Lord. Father, feed us now from your word. Teach us more about you. In Jesus' name, amen. I know that many of you um, over the past year were familiar with a part of our own, my family's story um, as we embarked last December and um, brought a daughter into our home and adopted a little seven-year-old named Eve. If you want to put her picture up here a second. If any parent has ever forced their kids' pictures upon you and that parent, you know, they just sort of get frustrated because you lose interest, that parent should just become a pastor because you can put your kids up and then everybody has to look at their pictures. So these are my adorable children and you must all ooh and awe when I put them up on the screen. When Eve was three years old, somebody gave her battery acid in the orphanage where she lived and it burned out her throat. Since coming home on December 2nd of last year, she's now had 27 surgeries in repairing her throat. This is a picture of her in one of the post-op sessions in the hospital. It's been an incredible journey, and there's parts in that whole process where you begin to ask God questions like, why does a three-year-old have to go through that? Why does that have to happen to a three-year-old on the other side of the world where there's absolutely no ability to care for her? By the time she came home, her illness was life-threatening. She was so sick by the time we got her on an airplane that there was a doctor in the middle of the night who gave us the last of his own steroids, the last of everything he had to keep himself safe in this environment in order for her to be able to travel home for us. That doctor's name, Dr. Rick Sacra, who contracted Ebola and came back here in the United States has now been raised back to health as well. All these people swirling around in these different stories, people giving of themselves to God. But this is sort of part of our story and what we've been going through. And I have questions of the justice of God in the middle of all of this. On her seventh surgery, the doctors in trying to repair her throat perforated her esophagus, an extremely dangerous move. Unbeknownst to Eve, she doesn't understand that she's an anatomically different than most people. Her aortic arch comes incredibly high. Her carotid artery comes near the trauma site. One wrong move from the doctors, and if any of that is perforated, five heartbeats, and she bleeds out, and she's done. She has no idea about any of this. When she woke up from that surgery, there was tubes down her throat, and she's sitting in the bed, and then she comes out of this fog and is in a different place in the world with people she's just learning how to trust. And here in this setting, it's absolutely terrified to wake up, to find tubes inside of you, people around you. What do you do? There is no amount of rational talk at that moment of time that can explain to her, well, you see, we had to do this because anatomically you're different than most other people, and the fear that is embedded in what's all taking place in this room, you need to understand medically what's all happening. Her mind cannot comprehend that. The only thing that, that conquers in those situations 
is for my wife to hold her face and to look into her eyes and say, I love you. Trust me. And as she learns slowly to calm down in the embrace and in being held, she learns how to trust. But not through a rational explanation, but just simply through love. So we're walking this process with all of Eve, and it's not only the medical stuff that she doesn't even fully understand. There are so many things within our culture that are just absolutely new and baffling to her, and I keep having to remind myself that this is all new, and she's learning to trust us each step of the way. Her her ability to understand this context is very limited. If you can go to the next picture. This summer we did a cross-country trip, drove 5,000 miles in 30 days and camped our way out to Vancouver and back as a family because we thought we'll get to know each other by locking ourselves in the van together. (laughs) Plus I was doing research for a sermon series on hell, so it worked out great. We were listening to songs along the way and realizing that every song we're playing in the car is new to Eve. And she doesn't know all the lyrics and how all these songs work. So this is a picture of her singing at the top of her lungs after the radio gets turned off for a while. You make beautiful things. That's the song. You make beautiful things. And she's trying to sing this and articulate it. But she doesn't know the lyrics. We start looking at each other just absolutely laughing because coming from the back seat is Jews make beautiful things. <laughs> Jews make beautiful things out of ducks. <laughs> she is learning so much and is so still in many ways out of place. But she's learning to trust us, and that's really the only weapon we have in conquering all the medical issues that sit before us in her life. We're sort of living our own little odyssey of theodicy. The goodness of God in the midst of something that is often really hard to take. As we continue on this series and this study of the minor prophets, we come this morning to the book of Habakkuk, which again is an odyssey in theodicy. The whole book essentially is Habakkuk in this conversation with God. He's complaining to him, basically asking the question, why do nice guys finish last? Why do bad things happen to good people? He's asking a question that's been asked before him in the person of Job and is asked after him and many others and is asked by you and I in so many different places as one more Dort College student studies like crazy for a test, doesn't get the grade that they really believe they should have had, and somebody else seemed to coast all the way through it and it doesn't seem fair or just that they got this and you got that. As you and I gather here, There's a significant portion of this community that is gathering to bury a 40-year-old mother of four children, the youngest who was two, who just died of cancer. Rachel Feikema and family and all of them are asking these same questions. You and I will ask these questions on a small scale and on a huge scale over and over again. God, where are you and why do you let this stuff happen? And it's Habakkuk's question. He's living in between the late 7th and early 6th century B.C., He's living at the same time as people like Jeremiah, Nahum, Zephaniah, and probably also Joel. We don't know a whole lot else about him other than he's got the coolest name in the Old Testament. 
And he's living at a time where the Assyrian Empire is starting to wane and the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, are starting to rise in power. And as these two things are taking place and the threats are happening in Israel, when he needs his leadership to be faithful and true and be able to stand up and lead, there's this incredible amount of internal corruption taking place inside of Israel. And so Habakkuk is serving everything taking place in his environment and saying, God, where are you? In all this injustice, in everything that is wrong, and the hardest part about this whole thing is he's asking God, God, are, are, you, are you just not interested? Are you just not active? Do you not see? What is going on? One of the hardest parts that come in this book isn't even so much Habakkuk's question, but it's the Lord's answer. From chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, this is the beginning of the Lord's answer. Habakkuk essentially asks, why are the perverse getting away with this in the world? And God says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if, I, if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to see dwellings not their own. Not exactly the answer he was looking for. God, can you do something about this injustice? And God essentially says, I will do something about this injustice, by bringing more injustice and even worse people to deal with this. As the dialogue continues, Habakkuk has a second question then, of course. It essentially sounds like this. Why then, God, do you, a holy and righteous God, even tolerate evil? The very question why so many people have stumbled and faltered in their faith and even turned their back at different times on God. God, why do you even tolerate this? So question number one, why do the wicked prosper? Question number two, if they are prospering, why do you even allow it to happen? And again, the answer is not what Habakkuk is hoping to hear. The answers that God gives us to our questions don't always give us what we want. In his reflection on this passage, Francis Chan talks about a certain arrogance that is embedded in each of us because we all want to worship a God who is obligated to explain himself to us. And that's simply just not how it works. At the end of the day, his answer to the second question points Habakkuk to a place we all wish we wouldn't have to go. Just trust me. In chapter 2, verse 4, this is part of God's answer to the question number 2. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness. This line that's been taken and done so many different things with, there's a, a commentary that comes from the rabbis not long before Jesus Walk the earth. It's called the Talmud. It's reflections of different rabbis that were written down as they studied passages. It's their Old Testament version of commentaries. And within the Talmud, this line comes up. If you can put this up. In explanation of this verse, Moses gave the Israelites 16, 613 commandments. David reduced them to 10, Isaiah to 2, but Habakkuk to 1. The righteous will live by their faithfulness. And of course, this is picked up again in the New Testament in Hebrews 11 in that famous passage, chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we, are hope for, what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. 
At its worst, this is sort of given at different times to become a God of the gaps, where your rationality and your explanation falters you and fails, then this is where faith kicks in. Faith explains what we can't see. Faith explains all the things that we can't wrap our mind and our heart and our hands around. But one of the things that Habakkuk wants us to understand is that's not where faith kicks in. Faith is the underlying foundational point of every other thing that happens. In the curriculum embedded in this school that every professor is asked to reflect upon when they build your syllabi, everything else, is what is the orientation of your heart? This is, this is the foundational piece, right? Religious orientation. This is where we begin. What is your heart leaning towards? And the Bible pushes us to places not to trust in the rationality of our mind, but to trust in the goodness of God, because at the end of the day, we have such a hard time comprehending. And yet, who hasn't asked these fairness questions? You've probably had it at different times in life where the circumstances of life seem to conspire all the evidence against the existence and the goodness of God, and then you stand in this place and ask, how? How do you let this happen? Why does evil seem to be winning when I'm looking around me in my life right now? Like I said before, Job asks the questions. Habakkuk asks the questions. The questions are asked of Jesus. There's a near parallel passage in Luke chapter 13. It's this interesting scenario where people come before Jesus and they tell him, do you know Pilate is mixing the blood of Galileans with sacrifices and he's putting these together. He's randomly killing people ruthlessly. And again, you're hoping for some sort of explanation from Jesus as he's walking about, embodying all of God's truth. Give us something to go on. Jesus' answer, when the question is asked, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now as if that wasn't confusing enough, Jesus does the same thing in that passage in the very next line that we see happening in Habakkuk's conversation with God. And then Jesus says, oh yeah, and by the way, the Tower of Siloam that fell and 18 people died, do you think that they were worse than everybody else? Like, are they being punished for something in their life? Is, is that where our minds go when we see bad things happening to good people? That maybe there's some sort of secret sin or something like that that we just don't know about and it all somehow fits into God's justice? And then a second time, Jesus gives the same answer and response. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, I notice a bit of a trend in Scripture when questions of theodicy get asked, when the goodness of God is called into question amidst all the evil in the world, and they are this, number one, that it's right to ask the questions. So many times Christians feel bad to ask these questions of God. Habakkuk asked pointed questions of God. He's asking him, can you explain yourself in all of this? The dialogue is recorded down for us, and it gets put into the Bible. The book of Job is the same conversation. Every believer and follower of Christ needs to know, you may ask the hard questions of God. You have a big God. Come and crawl up on his lap and beat on his chest, and he will not be indifferent in the middle of your pain and your suffering and your sorrow, but instead, our God cries with us. There is an injustice and an evil in this world, and that is one of the worst things about sin and death. It's the worst thing about sin, perhaps, at all, is that it's simply not fair. This is a solution that only the wisdom of God could ever solve. So what does God do with a sin and an evil that is not fair? That picks at children in horrible accidents, that picks off mothers before their time, that enslaves some of the poorest people in the world with some of the great, greatest burdens. 
All of these questions of the justice of God, these are the questions of the injustice of sin and evil and death and the evil one. And the great deceiver is he seeks to trip up everyone along the way through the sin that we brought into the world. So what does God do? Everybody who asks God the question expects some sort of definition of justice that will satisfy our ears. But this is what our God does. How does he answer the injustice of sin and death? With the injustice of grace. That we actually get what we don't deserve in response. The only way to solve a problem of this magnitude is to be absolutely ridiculous and extravagant in the love that you offer. Love, God's love is not about justice. God's love at the end, not the way we measure it, God's love at the end of the day is so all-consuming, you're going to open it all up so wide. I will, I will, I will take upon myself everything and all of these pains, and I am not standing at a distance when you cry and suffer and die for these different things where evil and sin has come into this world, but instead, I am crying with you. I will sacrifice more than any of you, and I will wipe the slate clean for every single evil and injustice that has been done for all who will but call on me. That will be my answer in the midst of pain and suffering, and that's what God gives. How do you How do you solve the injustice of death and evil and the indiscriminate acts of sin in this world? You don't answer with the rational. In the same way that the only way my daughter will be solved in that moment of confusion and not understanding what's all taking place, you can explain to her the mathematics of all of it, the science of all of it. Eve, I am for you, and I'm good, and I'm your daddy. And you just got to trust me. And I know you can't see this right now. Because when we want to meet out the justice of God, we have the ability to see this. We see our own thing, our own place right in front of us. And God always in these conversations too throughout Scripture invites people to see the bigger picture. Perspective is what God offers us also in the middle of these questions. Job, were you there when I carved out the bottoms of the ocean? Were you there when I put the stars in place? I'm holding so many things together. I know that right now these problems seem so big in your life, but guess what? I'm in the process of calling seven billion people in the world to me at the same time, and I'm doing it beyond just this moment of time where you live in. I'm doing this for all of eternity. I have things in my mind and can contemplate justice in ways that you simply cannot comprehend. I just need you to know that I am for you, and I am good. And at the end of the day, I'm not sure what else to tell you other than you need to trust me and the righteous will live by faith because faith is the foundational part is what will get you through this I'm not sure we have anything else to go on in the midst of that time and time again people come before God with their questions and God seems to point to his character and not our own ability to comprehend can we really comprehend I feel like the great sermonic failure every week when I get up to try to explain and wrap words around God just always seems and feels a little bit inadequate. There's something about that just regains perspective. Honestly, last night I was so tired. This is my third sermon in six days. I'm flat out tired right now. Last night, trying to gain a little bit of Clarity in my mind before I can fall asleep. I go on my park bench and sit in the backyard and I'm looking up at the stars and there's something about being freed from this place of self-interest, this wider perspective as I watch this shooting star fly through the sky 
and contemplate how far away these things are and know that I trust and I believe and I curl up in the lap of a God who has the ability to hold so much more than I could ever comprehend. I see this and he sees this. I have to know my place in all of it. My humility and my faith, my ability to know that he is good, my ability to look back on the patterns of what he has done through time when people were locked in a moment, and I read the stories, and that's why these stories are so important to us. Locked in the moment, Habakkuk, when he first asked the question, can't comprehend what God has in mind to do, to take his people into exile in order to free them from an even greater imprisonment that they have put upon themselves. Could he see that in the moment? No. As we turn the pages of history through Scripture, can we see it now? Yeah, we can see it. But know that in the same way that we come to this, there is a wider picture for all the pain and struggles and suffering that is going on. And I will never come up with an apologetic argument for you good enough. At the end of the day, Jesus walked this earth and explained with the mouth of God to people what he was doing. And then when they still couldn't understand, he did the miraculous in their midst. And still, people who saw it, people who heard it, wouldn't believe. It's not about the ability to wrap our mind around God that makes us follow him. It's the ability to trust in his love and his goodness. I know you don't know all the answers. You are allowed to ask the questions. And we must trust in God as the starting point, not only where our minds and our intellect run out on us. He is and will finish every pain, every struggle, every heartache, every time you've been hurt, every injustice you've cried out for. Just know, know, know that our God is good. And he is making beautiful, beautiful things out of what we cannot comprehend. Do I really rely on or rely at the end of the day on my mind to lead me in this world? Or will I trust in his? The righteous will live by faith. Will you please join me in prayer? Father, teach our hearts to trust. As Habakkuk summarizes all the laws and everything it is that you want from us, we're reminded again that you call us to a place of faith. Father, thank you that you entertain our questions. That you take us seriously. That you take us even more seriously than we take ourselves that you are bigger, that you are greater. And for all of these reasons, we run into your arms. Help us to trust in your goodness and in your grace, to see your love, and to find our peace knowing that you are bigger than we are.